All right, if you, if you will look at your packet that you have in front of you, um, there's a couple things that I just want to draw your attention to uh, quickly and, and remind you of, um, and I, I kind of want to do this as, as many weeks as we possibly can, because I think it's important that we remember uh, there's, there's a few really important dates in Israel's history, and one that we're coming up on tonight is going to be 722 B.C. 722 B.C. is... Pop quiz. Captivity of the northern kingdom into the hands of the Assyrian army. Yeah, so uh, the Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to take away the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom, you'll remember, is the illegitimate line, essentially. It was established by God. He did separate them. He decreed that this would happen, and it was for the sins of Solomon that he did that, and also the sins of Rehoboam, really. Um, Solomon's son, that he split off Jeroboam, uh, son of Nebat, to go and, and be the king of the north. He reigned there for uh, about 21 years in the north. And then on through that, there's been a uh, succession. Some, some uh, sons have reigned on the throne, but then there would be an overthrow of that dynasty, and a new king would reign and it's kind of been something of a revolving door in the north, and it's been a revolving door, sadly, of idolatry. It's been characterized by idolatry all, almost all of its days. There's been very few, if any, real kings that did uh, anything right. A uh, few of them followed the Lord a little bit, but then obviously deviated in terms of worship to pagan worship in some form or fashion. And so the northern kingdom has largely been an idolatrous kingdom. And um, so... Tonight, we're getting close, really, to the end of that kingdom, and we're going we're gonna to talk about the exile. It's going to happen tonight, and so uh, the Assyrian army is going to march in in 722 and, and end that with Hosea on the, on the throne. And uh, on the right-hand side of the, of the last page in your handout, you have the, the kings of the south as they have reigned on the throne, and we're going to see their exile as well into the hands of Babylon, but that's not going to happen until 586. So we still got a little bit of time. But the big point, though, is when your brothers to the north are hauled off into captivity, it tends to sort of wake you up, right? You have this sort of, wait a minute, this is possible? Like, this, this could happen? I didn't know this could happen, right? And, and there tends to be a little bit of a, a, a kind of an awakening. And perhaps there's something like that, though not a big one, really, in the south. Uh, we're going to see some very terrible things, and even, even worse than that, things that happen in the south from king after king. But then we'll also have some pretty decent kings and some good kings and some kings that want to lead revival and things like that, like Josiah um, in the land. And so there, there's some, some decent things coming for Judah, but for now, things are thrown into chaos. As you can imagine, if a, king, if a kingdom falls, well, kind of as we're watching right now, um, a little to one degree or another, when things like that happen, it tends to have a ripple effect across the entire world, and things get spun into chaos. And so some of the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight is a really a chaotic series of events that are going to be taking place in, in and around the northern kingdom, and a lot of them have an impact on the south. When a kingdom falls, it doesn't just impact that one kingdom or even the kingdom that invades that kingdom. It, it also impacts all the people that are connected, all the areas around, and and what you'll see is, when a kingdom starts to fall, a lot of other places become op opportunistic, right? They kind of seize on that. I mean, just as a, a, not to get political, okay, I'm not trying to do that, believe me, that's the last thing I want to do. But if you just even look at Afghanistan, America leaves Afghanistan, and there's other people that move in to Afghanistan. Russia and China start to make inroads into Afghanistan. Why? They're being opportunistic, right? There's some tumult that's happening in Afghanistan, and so you can seize upon that and, and see some of the assets and things like that um, that are happening there. And we're going to see a little bit of that tonight as well. So just as a reminder, a review, just from some of the things that we talked about last week. Remember, uh, Jotham was king of Judah, and he reigned um, kind of in place of his father, uh, Uzziah, who was struck him, stricken with leprosy, and he kind of reigned on the throne with Uzziah for a little while, but Uzziah was sort of exiled during a lot of that time. So from 750 to about 740, uh, Jotham is on the throne with, Ahab, with Uzziah in, the, in, the, in his bedroom, basically kind of wasting away. 
And once Uzziah dies, uh, Jotham then takes the throne. He reigns for another few years until he begins to co-reign with his son Ahaz. His son Ahaz comes to the throne, and he's sort of a rambunctious individual. He's got a lot of spirit and a lot of, um, I think the Jewish word is chutzpah. It's like, uh, you know, got a little bit of, uh, I think maybe we might say pizzazz. He's got, he's got some spunk to him. And so uh, he, he starts um, doing some things, and, and obviously um, there begins to be this threat from Assyria that's growing out on the eastern horizon, and the only way some small nations can really withstand the threat of Assyria coming in is if they band together. And so here is Ahaz, he's just taken the throne, and two kings uh, north of Ahaz, the king of the northern kingdom, Pekah, at the time, and the king of Damascus, Rezin, they get together and they say, hey, let's go down to the south, let's talk to uh, Ahaz down there, since he's just taken the throne, maybe we can pull one over on him, and maybe we can get them all together, get us all together, join our armies, and when Assyria marches in, we can join with some of the other armies of the little kingdoms outside Edom and places like that, and we'll be able to defeat Assyria when they come in, or at least put up enough of a fight that they don't really want to mess with us together. But even the, and, and as they pr- kind of pitch this to Ahaz, they do it in a threatening sort of way because they say, well, if you don't, then here's what's going to happen. We're going to come against you, and we're going to take you down. And we'll put our king on the throne, and he'll do whatever we want. We'll band together, and then we'll do what we want. And so Ahaz... Being a new king is shaking in his boots, right? He doesn't know exactly how he's going to do this. And so the Lord sends um, Isaiah along and, and, um, and, tells, and, and tells him, don't do it. Don't take the deal. And, um, and so, which brings us into our first little thing here. That, uh, the Lord sends um, Isaiah, the prophet, along and he, and he, he, he tells him, look, uh, don't take the deal with them. You're going to be fine. These two kings are going to burn out really quickly. They're going to die, and so you don't have to worry about them. And, and this is the scene that we, get, we saw last week where uh, Isaiah promises him a sign. Uh, the, the virgin, the young woman, will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Emmanuel. Um, he will represent God with you. You will understand that God is with you in this. But before you get too high on the hog... Ahaz, you're going to be judged too, just not by Assyria. <laughs> so it's not all going to end well. Well, in all of this, with Ahaz now refusing, he takes Isaiah's advice and he refuses to actually join with this coalition of the northern kingdom and Damascus. And so we have a king, hey, he listens to the, the prophet. But what does he do instead? Well, he sends a message to Assyria and says, hey, don't attack me, I'm on your side. These guys petitioned me to join them, and I'm not going to do that. See, you, you want to join with me, or I want to join with you. I, I'm not here to hurt you, I'm here to be your friend. And so he sends this somewhat of a frantic appeal to the Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria, and he asks him essentially for help. It makes some sense, doesn't it? I mean... Some uh, maybe political sense. There's a little bit of savvy to Ahaz. Let me see if Tiglath-Pileser, which I think still is a good name. I'm just recommending it. Um, and so when Ahaz does this, what then do you think is going to happen? Well, the people in the north, uh, Pekah and Rezin, the king of the northern kingdom and, and the king of Damascus, they're going to stay true to their promise. They're going to start attacking the south, Right? Now, God never tells him, look, it's going to be perfectly easy for you. Life is going to be great if you listen to me. He doesn't ever tell him that. He just tells him you're not going to be conquered and overthrown by Assyria. And, and so, true to form, uh, there's some stuff that starts to go down. And namely, um, Rezin starts assaulting, uh, the king of Damascus starts assaulting the southern capital of Jerusalem and sees that it's not falling as easily as he wants. And so he moves around to take this strategic port city called Elath, which is down in the southern part. And I'm gonna, we're going to see this on a map, but I want to read these two passages here in 2 Chronicles 28, 16-18. It says, at, the same, at that same time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help, 
For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had made, had made raids on the cities in the Shephelah and the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth, Beth Shemesh, uh, Ajalon, Jeredoth, Succo, and its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages. And they settled there. And then 2 Kings 16, 5-6, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered, uh, recovered Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So, what essentially is, is happening is they're making good on their word. They told them that we were going to attack you, and we we're going to, you know, do some damage if you don't go with us, and they're making good on their word. But you notice what happens to, when they get to Jerusalem. They just can't take the city, and you wonder why. Well, it turns out God is also true to his word, and he doesn't allow Ahaz to falter or to fall. Now, Ahaz is evil, and we're going to see that he, he continues in evil um, and is actually not even as evil as it's going to get in Judah, but he is pretty evil. And, um, and so, uh, but, but still, God is true to his word and doesn't allow him to fall. Now, here's what this area looks like here, and this is why it's so strategic. So, you have a lot of the cities right in here that were mentioned in that little run of, of uh, passages here that we were talking about, Beth Shemesh and all those, are right in here in Judah. So they're taking out some of these territories out to the south. But if you look down uh, uh, out to the east, uh, west, sorry, down here to the south, if you look down to the very south, that red circle down there is Elath. Now you'll see up north of that is the Dead Sea. All right, so we're getting our kind of bearings of the Holy Land. Up even north of that, you got the Jordan River that runs all the way up north, and right up at the top here is the Sea of Galilee, and my laser pointer, I think, has, has died on me. There's the Sea of Galilee, there's the Dead Sea, is down here in the south, and then all the way down here is basically a port city that leads into what we've commonly referred to as the Southern Sea, the Arabian Sea. Um, this is the Sinai Peninsula that it's on. To the left here is Egypt. All the way over here on the left side is Egypt. So you can see the Suez Canal over here on the left side as well. And then down here is another port city, Elath. This is it's pretty strategic, right? Because you need water uh, for many reasons, but, but also to transport things and things like that. So the Edomites go in and settle there. Now we've talked about the concept before of just losing territory. Right? We've talked about that before. When, if you think all the way back to the book of Joshua, what's the goal? They come in and they gain territory. And as they represent the kingdom of God, the territory that they're in begins to expand. And they put more and more of the, the region under the submission of the kingdom of God. Well, as we see kings continue to obey, namely David, Solomon is blessed by virtue of David. But because they obey, the kingdom begins to expand. So the kingdom is profitable under David. It, it, its territories begin to expand. He conquers many of the enemies. But then because of David, and because of David's obedience, what happens to Solomon? Solomon lives in peace. And it's told to us within the first few years of Solomon's reign, when Solomon takes over, that he lives in peace. God gave him peace from all his enemies. And why did he do that? So that he could establish the temple, right? He could build the temple. David had to put things un, in order, kind of like Joshua, a conquering hero. And then Solomon was the one that was able to reap the benefits of David's work. And when God gave them peace, it was a sign that the kingdom of God had actually come. Much like what we see in the Garden of Eden, where Adam sort of represents that first king, he's, his territory is established in peace. And his goal is very simple, just spread the kingdom of God, put people under submission of, of God's reign. And, and when he falters, everything gets spun out into chaos. Murder starts happening and things like this. Well, we see the same pattern start to happen with, um, with the kings of the south. As they begin to become idolatrous and falter, God splits the kingdom. God starts to separate the territories back into the control of the pagan nations around them. And so that's exactly what's happening here. We see uh, not only is the northern kingdom about to be taken off into captivity because of idolatry, but the southern kingdom is being warned as well because they've been in part with the idolatry of the north. And so what happens? They're beginning to lose territories as well. 
And you're seeing, well, it's, uh, it's all turning south for them. And uh, all of these territories are going back under the control of pagan nations. Okay, now, Ahaz's appeal to Tiglath-Pileser out in Assyria is going to pay off, though, right? If you appeal and you say, hey, I'm on your side, and you got this big army on your side, well, the, the benefit of that is they start to do the fighting for you, right? That's the hope. When I was a kid, I was, uh, I was all of, in sixth grade, I was all of like four foot one, all right? And I was probably about 200 pounds. Not really, but I was, I was a chunky little kid. Um, but I was super short. My best friend was in, in, I believe, seventh grade. He was six one, and he was about, uh, seventh grade, six one, Pushing 300 pounds, ended up playing offensive line in a D1 school, um, and he was my best friend. I was, I was glued to the hip to Aaron Kincaid. And there's one main reason, because he was a protector, right? So uh, I played the role of Ahaz in this little drama. <laughs> Aaron plays the role of Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria. So... Once Tiglath-Pileser gets wind of what's happening over in the Holy Lands, he starts to move west. And in 734, he comes in and he attacks and defeats Ashkelon, Gaza, Gezer, and lifted, his, uh, and lifted the siege on Jerusalem. And so he begins to defend Jerusalem and, and protect it as well. And then, not only that, but then he turns his attention to the northern kingdom, where Pekah and Rezin are gathered together, and he starts to go after particularly Rezin of Damascus. And in 732, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria goes in and destroys Damascus so utterly that they never appear on the Old Testament stage ever again. Just turns into dust. All right. What did the Lord tell Ahaz was going to happen from the mouth of Isaiah? Hey, these are smoldering wicks. They're, they're, they're gone in no time. Before you, this boy even is raised to the point of knowing good or bad, which may be 8, 10, 12 years, something like that, they're going to be dead. Well, it's within five. They're gone, they're off the stage. Uh, so Damascus is destroyed utterly. And so, then what does he do? Well, he then turns his attention to the only one left. And who is that? That's the northern kingdom of Israel. Oh, I forgot to draw your attention to these cities over here. We've seen them before. These are the Philistine cities of Ashkelon, Ashdod, um, Gaza, Gath, those territories over there. So he begins to conquer this area out here. You can see the strategy there, right? Is conquer the areas near the sea. You need that for transport. Uh, and then turn your attention to Damascus, which is a land bridge, right? And then turn your attention to the northern kingdom, which continues the land bridge. Now, he doesn't have to worry too much about the southern kingdom of Judah because Ahaz is under his thumb already. So that's not a big deal. So he turns his attention to the northern kingdom, and he starts to overthrow it. Well, when that happens, people become opportunistic, right? The king is under assault from Assyria, and so what do you think is going to happen? Well, there's going to be people who go, hey, I'd kind of like to be the king of Assyria, and so that's what we see happen. Hosea begins to overthrow King Pekah, and he puts him to death, and Hosea becomes the king of uh, the northern kingdom. Look at 2 Kings 15, 29-31. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Aijon, uh, Abel, Beth, Mecca, uh, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and the land of Naphtali. Hey, you know those. And he carried the people uh, captive to Assyria. Then Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So we have that typical kind of refrain that ends his, um, his reign on the throne. So um, Hosea becomes opportunistic and takes the throne, and you'll see if you look at that list of kings... Well, he's the last one, so he's going to ride it out all the way into the, to the end here. But Hosea takes the throne, and we're going to see why he reigns it out. He, he carries it on to the end in just a minute. Um, but 
Here's the deal. Unlike my friendship with Aaron, uh, Ahaz, if you build a friendship with the one that God is going to use to judge your neighbors to the north, well, you're going to have to pay for that, right? Those kinds of friendships don't come easy and they don't come cheap. And so Ahaz is going to pay dearly for his survival, and not only in, the, in terms of money. He is going to pay, literally pay, um, for uh, Tiglath-Pileser's uh, allegiance, or his allegiance to Tiglath-Pileser, I should say. But he's also going to pay in moral and spiritual compromises, um, since he is basically going to be bargaining with Tiglath-Pileser to, to join forces with him, and to have that guy as a protector. So, if you'll look at 2 Chronicles 28, 28, 21, and 2 Kings 16, 7-9, um, Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. <laughs> 2 Kings 16, 7-9 so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel who attacked me, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent uh, a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. Um, so there are going to be some, uh, uh, some, some moral and spiritual compromises as well. Obviously, if you're Ahaz, is it a good thing to loot the temple? Not really. Uh, the Lord doesn't tend to take kindly to that kind of approach to staving off a threat. Now remember, the Lord told him, look, you don't have to fear the northern kingdom and you don't have to fear Damascus because they're going to be killed. But Ahaz took matters a step further, and not, he, didn't, he, he did trust the prophet in one sense, but he didn't really trust the prophet in another sense, because he used it as an opportunity to partner with Tiglath-Pileser when he didn't have to, and he, he could have he uh, obeyed, but instead he begins to loot the temple. He also um, begins to build altars to the gods of the, uh, the Assyrians in the land. And from these altars, he begins to worship, and he actually has the priests of the northern kingdom of the of the southern kingdom begin to build these altars to the Assyrian gods. And there's this sort of uh, syncretism of worship that begins to happen in the southern kingdom, which is actually going to bring about its demise. And his grandson's going to end up using a lot of that to, or like at least the inclinations of Ahaz to begin, like we talked about last week, sacrifice to children, and so. This is going to bring a scourge upon the land that we haven't seen yet. It says in Isaiah 7, 17, The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house uh, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed Judah, the king of Assyria. So, um, we're going to, you're going to get exactly what you bargained for, basically, is what's going to happen. And so this scourge that... Uh, Ahaz brings upon the land is going to remain for the rest of his days. He's going to find himself bound to Assyria so closely that he really can't afford to separate, and essentially he's going to um, he's going to live out his days in servitude to the king of Assyria and not able to depart from him. And so. The, the problem with Assyria, though, is they're over here attacking, and when you're the big you know, the, the bad guy in the region, you're the big behemoth in the region, and, and much probably like maybe America and many other armies have found, if you divert your attention and you start focusing over here, what happens back there? Well, you start getting attacked on the backside, because as I said, as armies start to kick up and as wars start to come, become, uh, come into the land, people become opportunistic. And so you've got people that Assyria has put under their thumb, like Babylon and other armies that are down there on their backside, that when they see their attention diverted over this way, uh, they use it as an opportunity to get out from under the thumb of Assyria. And once Assyria diverts their attention over here, well then other kingdoms are going to start looking for an opportunity to get out from under their thumb. So um, Tiglath-Pileser finds himself kind of up to his neck 
in trouble one way or the other. So he goes over to the west, starts fighting Ahaz's battles, and finds himself tied up in a war back in his homeland. So he has to go back over there and start fighting in the east. He's going to end his life fighting over here in the east. But it is not over yet. All right? The, the wars keep coming. So Tiglath-Pileser is over here, and he's going to end up dying here in just a little bit. But Hosea is taking the throne of the north. And now that Damascus has been reduced to ashes, um, obviously Tiglath-Pileser wants to capture Samaria. He knows that. But, um, and so what does he do? What, what do you think the northern king is going to do? Because he's got Assyria breathing down his neck. Start ponying up the cash, baby. That's what you got to do. You either, you either fight them, you die, or you pay them. Those are, but the only three options that you got. And, or you hide and hope they won't find you. Uh, <laughs> and, and since you can't do that, uh, you got to start paying tribute. So let's look at 2 Kings 17, 1-3. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign over Samaria, uh, uh, reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. So in 727, Tiglath-Pileser is going to die in Assyria, and um, he's trying to squash out a rebellion from the Babylonians, and his son Shalmaneser V is going to take over. And it's at this point, sometime in this process, Obviously, he begins paying tribute to the kings of Assyria, but then pretty quickly after that, the king of the north, Hosea, is going to seek to get out from under the thumb of the Assyrians. You, you got to think, too. It, it, some of this is starting to make sense. Look, I, don't, I would never expect anybody, it's difficult for me even, to remember all the names and the dates and all these kinds of things. It's, it's kind of, there's a lot of turmoil and there's a lot of names and there's a lot of people, and who cares what his name is? Shalmaneser, who? How do, does it matter? Okay. The point is, what we're seeing is that, first of all, everything that the Lord has told these kings has come true. So, they have every reason to believe what the Lord is telling them. Second, when the Lord is bringing judgment to his people, he doesn't bring it in a vacuum. There's reasons why he brings the judgment, first of all, but also when he's bringing the judgment, he tells them why. And so it's very clear to these people why judgment has come to them. It's not as though they're kind of in the situation where they've got Pat Robertson over here on the side saying, well, you know why we got that tornado. It's because this, that, and the other. It's not happening. That's not the pattern that the Lord actually uses throughout Scripture to judge His people. You see that? Every time He's bringing judgment, He's telling them why He's bringing judgment. This is what you've done. Your sins become a stench to him, and he makes you aware of what those sins are. So, these, so the, the, the kings of the north, and the south for that matter, they're not suffering for no reason. They understand very well the reasons that they're suffering. The other thing that I want you to see throughout all of this, through the history of the, all the Old Testament, is that we are desperately wicked. <laughs> the things that the kings are doing in the, in the, the, the nations around them that you and I would be caught probably doing very similar things. When, when, when turmoil starts to kick up in our lives, do we always go to our knees in prayer? Probably not. I mean, if we're honest, don't we look for some really practical solutions? And when we say practical, what we mean is, I can take care of these myself, Right? So you see what these kings are doing is conventional, very natural wisdom. I can't defeat these kings to the north, and the prophet has told me that I'll be fine. But just to ensure, why don't I pad the pockets of Higglath-Pileser, right? So this is all, this is all we're, we're looking at. Whether you ever remember these names or not is, is sort of irrelevant, Yes, the big dates that happen in Israel, that's great. You probably should know those things so that it helps you read the Bible better. And any details that you can remember help you read the Bible better, sure. And that's part of the goal here. But the other is to see that, and these events, they keep repeating themselves over and over and over again. And as it turns out, man hasn't really changed that much. 
But the reality is God hasn't changed that much either. He still cares about the same things. The benefit that we're seeing here, though, is that the judgment that we would be due for some of the same activities that these kings are being judged for, the judgment has already fallen on the shoulders of Jesus. So we don't have to reap that judgment anymore. I'm guilty of the same things Ahaz is, to a smaller degree, mind you, but I am guilty of the same things. And yet, the judgment doesn't come to me like it came to Ahaz. And as he, you know, obviously is reiterated to not only Ahaz, but any king in the south, the Lord remembers the covenant that he made with David. Well, in my case, he remembers the covenant he made with his own son. So, I'm even more protected than any of the kings of the south were. So, that, that's kind of the point. But what we're seeing here is it sort of starts to repeat itself over and over. So, the Babylonians, you know, are kicking up a fuss. Obviously, Tiglath-Pileser dies. His son comes onto the throne, Shalmaneser V. And guess what he does? Well, he picks up right where his dad left off. You know, it kind of runs in the family. And so he decides, at, at somewhere around this time, Hosea decides, hey, these Babylonians are a thorn in the side of the Assyrians. And I'm going to use this time to be opportunistic. And I'm going to get out from under the thumb of the Assyrians. Surely they are so preoccupied with their battle back home, they're not going to miss my tribute. So I'll just stop giving it. And let's see what happens. Shalmaneser starts doing the math in his little palace. I don't know if really that's what happened, but he starts doing the math, and he goes, wait a second, we're missing some money. Why are we missing some money? And so he summons his little, his little uh, treasurer, and the treasurer says, well, sir, uh, the king of the north, the northern kingdom, Hosea, stopped paying tribute some months ago. He what? So he turns in 725 his attention towards the northern kingdom, and he begins laying siege to Samaria, and the city, man, they put up an effort. They fought as long as they can. Remember, Damascus is off the stage. There's no help from the north for them. Ahaz has his own issues. There's no help from the south. And Ahaz is, is under the thumb of Assyria. He's not helping. So they're left kind of alone. They fight, and they fight valiantly for three years. But eventually they fall, and in 722, they fall to Assyria. And then the real trouble begins. Okay. So, what had become the policy for Assyria as of late? Well, you saw it happen when they killed Damascus just a few years before, just ten years before. They hauled off captives into their home country, right? And left those cities vacant. Well, that's exactly what they begin doing in the northern kingdom. They start deporting people from the northern kingdom, and they take them back to the Assyrian Empire as captives. But here's the real sticky situation. They then take some of the people that they put under the thumb from Babylon. Remember Babylon and all these other little nations were starting to kind of pick on Assyria. They, take, they had put them under their thumb, finally. Well, they took some of those captives and they brought them back to Israel. So there was a swap that took place. Here's what we'll do. We'll take these people and we'll put them over there in the north and we'll take the north and we'll put them over here. <laughs> it's basically just moving people away from their home. <laughs> but putting them under their thumb, taking them captive. Now, this is where things start to make sense of things we're more familiar with. All right? Assyria has taken the northern kingdom of, and the capital city of, what's the capital of the northern city? Or the northern kingdom? Samaria. They've taken Samaria captive, and they've hauled off the Samariaites. <laughs> the Sumerians, into Assyria. And they've taken Babylonians and people of other towns in the area and put them back in Samaria. All right. So what happens when those people go from Babylon, who are native to Babylon and to surrounding areas, what happens when they go and they live in the northern kingdom? Do they go, hey, what's you guys' religion here? Of course not. <laughs> they brought their own. No thanks, we, we got our own, right? Right here in our pocket. And so they bring their religious practices and uh, all of this back to the land. And uh, th this, we could probably go really far into this for a long time, talk about some really crazy things that are in the, in the Old Testament. But 
we won't. We'll just stick with the text here. 2 Kings 17, 24 to 26. Look what God does because of this. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Shepharavim, uh, uh, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possessions of, uh, possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. All right. So they come into, the, into God's territory. Remember, the land is not, does not belong to the Israelites. The land belongs to the Lord. That's how they came to possess it in the first place, was that it belonged to the Lord. He gave them possession of it. So when people bring in their pagan religious practices, they are judged like the people that lived there before. And so he sends lions among them to kill them, and they say, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. We got a problem, king. We, we're in trouble. We need to um, do something about this. And this is uh, a new king in this area has taken over, uh, Sargon II. And so what does he do? Oh, these are the territories, by the way, sorry. I keep forgetting I have maps in here. Uh, Babylon, my laser pointer is pooping out on me. Babylon, uh, the red circles, top left, Babylon, next to it is Kutha, down there, Shepharavim, Ava over on the right bottom, and then Hamath over on the right top. So those are some of the cities. All of these are in the Fertile Crescent, just below Assyria, you see up there at the top, Babylon's further down south. Um, so all of these people, what is, it, what is the solution? Well, I know, let's send an Israelite priest who we have captive, let's just send him over there and start teaching them giving them Sunday school classes. And so he goes over there in 2 Kings 17, 27, 28. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests who, whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now, what... What are the odds that a Sunday school class once a week is going to take a whole bunch of pagans and convert them to Judaism? Especially when the people that were hauled off were not really Jewish to begin with. They were acting just as pagan as the pagans. What are the odds that one of these priests is going to come back and be the you know, Jonathan Edwards and lead the great revival, great awakening there, uh, amongst a bunch of pagans. No, that's not what happens. What's going to happen? They're going to go, oh, that's how we stave off a lion attack? Okay, well, we'll do that. We're just going to bring that into our pantheon of gods we already worship, right? So what ends up happening is they begin to worship Yahweh, and they begin to worship the gods that they already worship to begin with. We don't want to tick them off, too. I mean, then we'd be in worse shape. Maybe we'll get tigers coming this time. So, like, lions, tigers, who knows, bears? Um, might as well. Right. Um, so, they pick up this sort of syncretistic religion of Yahwism plus all the other gods that they worshipped. What ends up resulting is this hodgepodge that looks something like Judaism. And who are these people? These are the Samaritans. They're, they live in Samaria. Are these people Jewish? No. They're Babylonians. So why is it then in the New Testament that the disciples hate them with such disdain? Because they're not Jews. But they've picked up something of the Jewish religion. And as we've seen over the, and I've, I've harped on this, I've tried to harp on this a lot, all right, throughout this whole thing, which was 
the kings of the north, they established centers of worship, right? And they did that so that the people in the north would not go down to the south to worship at the temple, right? What happens when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well? Well, y'all say the worship is at the temple, but we hear that it's on, mount, on, on this mount near us. It's not at the temple. That is completely consistent with everything the northern kingdom had been practicing since the beginning. Right? Why is that? Because a northern king priest, a northern kingdom priest, taught them that. And they've been hearing that ever since. So these Samaritans come by it on decent authority, on at least tradition, that this is where we worship, on Mount Gerizim in the northern kingdom, right? And not down at the temple in the south. Because never really in their history did the northern kingdom ever go down to the south and worship in Jerusalem. The kings made sure of that. So essentially you've got this syncretistic religion made up mostly of Babylonians with some God sprinkled in that then become a, a, a growing sect, a region in the area. By the time we get to the New Testament, they're so the, the Jews disdain them so much that Jews from the north in Galilee will walk around the kingdom of Samaria and uh, around, the, around the Samaritan villages to go into, into Judah in the south. But you know, oddly enough, I think one of the things that continues to hit me over the course of this study as we look at uh, generation after generation, the kids tend to pick up a lot of what the parents do. And it tends to be woven into the DNA of the culture. So we see, even with Jesus and the woman at the well, some inklings uh, going all the way back to this day right here, and then even some inklings going all the way back to the very foundation of the northern kingdom. They've been taught this since the beginning. Even though they weren't from there, this is baked into the DNA of the culture of the north. But that translates, doesn't it, into our very own day? I mean, we, we read in Deuteronomy 6 the very basic commands that we have. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sure. But then you shall write that all the law, his law on, as frontlets on your mind and your arms. And then what shall you do? Teach them diligently to your children. And the, the concept there in Deuteronomy 6 is relatively simple. Whether you walk by the way, whether you're working, whether you're putting them to bed at night, whenever you're doing whatever, you're continually teaching how all of these things are connected to the God of the universe. How that blade of grass was created by God. Look at how amazing it is. And look at how, what he did, how he built those kinds of things. You're, you're, everything you do, you're pointing them back to the creator of the universe. You're commanded to do it. And what happens? Well, when they grow older, they ask you. There's going to be a day come where they ask you, why, why do we do these things? Why do we worship this way? And you're to tell them, because we were slaves in Egypt, and God brought us out, redeemed us with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. These principles in Deuteronomy 6, they carry over into the New Testament. This is the concept of us as redeemed people in God's family, is that we raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's the reason, it's the very reason why we have children in our worship service and why we believe they should be in here and why we encourage parents, bring your kids. Why? Because they have to learn how to worship. It's a language. They have to be taught and they need to see their parents do it. And that's the only way they're going to learn, right? That's what we believe. It, we want to sow that into our DNA. Why? So that when they're old, they will not depart from it. We're going to raise our kids this way so that when they're older, they won't depart from it. We see time and again that they raised their kids in idolatry. And what happened? They became idol worshipers. <laughs> Shocker! <laughs> you know? Questions?
There, at least in the biblical text, um, all we hear is he took everybody out and he put Babylonians back in. I think there's a really high likelihood that there were some people left over in Israel that probably intermarried with those people. Does she have some Jewish blood in her? Possible. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's right. Yep. She'd been taught exactly that from the beginning. And, and the Samaritans in the New Testament um, only adhered to the first five books of the Bible. So they're much like the Sadducees of that day, too. They adhered to the first five books of the Bible. Um, you know, only certain... Th- so the prophets weren't authoritative... Nothing after that was really authoritative. So yeah, I think she probably means theological father. But I say that with a caveat. There's a high likelihood there's some Jews left over and probably there's some intermarrying with the Babylonians that are coming to live there that is going on, I'm sure. Yeah, I would bet on it. But I don't really have much to go on except for he probably didn't haul off everyone. That's normally what would happen, is you kind of, you leave, you, you leave the riffraff behind and you take the, the aristocracy, the people that, are, that have some, you know, something to offer your kingdom. Yeah. So that, that's part of why you think, I mean, the Bible, he, he just hauled them off, you know, and so we don't really know, was that everybody? It doesn't necessarily say that it was everybody, but it doesn't necessarily give you much of an indication that a bunch of people were left behind either, so, you know, who really knows? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how did what happen? How did she become from the tribe of Asher? That's part of how we think that there's, there had to be some people left behind. There's probably also some people that escaped. I mean, similar to what you see I mean, going on in Afghanistan. You know, war breaks out. Not everybody's just going to stay in the land. There's going to be a lot of people migrate. And so there's migration that happens all over the text. So, I mean, the tribe of Dan, moved, the whole tribe moved from one area of the land all the way up to the north. So um, in all likelihood, there's a lot of movement that's taking place. There are some people that are left behind. Not everybody's held off, uh, hauled off into captivity. We see that even with Babylon. When Babylon comes in and hauls off the southern kingdom, there's people that are left intentionally back in the, back in the homeland. So, you know, th- there's, plus there's going to be some, they're not going to stay over in Babylon forever. You know, I mean, they're, they're going to be released-ish, you know, <laughs> and, and sort of migrate, you know, kind of back and find the land anyway, so especially after Babylon when the southern kingdom's hauled off. So there's, there's going to be a movement, you know. And so even in captivity we find, this is what's so remarkable about the Jews is they're hauled off into captivity, especially in the, we see this a lot in the south, they're hauled off into captivity into Babylon, and yet uh, they maintain the line of succession to the throne, even in Babylon, right? And, and, and so, which is amazing. Right? They, they took meticulous records. The reason being is because of the promise in Genesis chapter 3 that you're going to, um, there's going to be an offspring come. And so the whole Old Testament is tracking this offspring that's coming. And they keep copious records of that offspring. He's going to be from the line of David. So they keep track of the line of David. Now, mysteriously, after Jesus, they quit. Go figure. They would, yeah, right? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I worked with a guy who was, who was uh, in the Israeli army and was a is citizen of Israel. 
And I was like, so do you know what tribe you're from? And he's like, nah, not really. Most of us don't know. <laughs> we, we don't really know. He goes, but I think, and I was like, ah, forget it. You don't, <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> you're just taking a stab in the dark. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. I think I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> he really knows. Yeah. Isn't that crazy, though? It's just for a, a, a group that keeps such meticulous records. Where are they now? Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 Interesting. All right. Well, let's let's pray, and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time to gather together. We thank you for the things that you continue to teach us and reiterate to us through the history of Israel the things that we begin to understand about how you have redeemed your people, um, that we see you are faithful to your promises, that you have made copious amounts of promises in the Old Testament. You've kept every single one of them. You have uh, made promises about the Messiah. We've seen those come to fruition. So we have every reason to trust that the promises that are still outstanding of the return of your son, that there will one day be a time when uh, pain will be no, no more, sin will be no more. Uh, that Christ will return and judge the living and the dead. We, uh, we will live with him forever uh, in the new heavens and new earth. And that we trust that those promises will also be fulfilled as every promise you have ever made has been fulfilled. So we have every reason to hope. And we take that with us. We keep that close to us. And I pray that you remind us of that daily. That we have every reason to trust in the promises that you have made knowing that you will keep every single word. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.